Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. I'm Matt. And I'm Charlotte. Welcome, Charlotte. Hello. Hello. So, Spectology is a science fiction book club podcast where each month we pick a book, read it, and talk about it over the course of two episodes. Of course, this being December is our sort of like, we're doing a little bit of a special thing this month. We're talking about three different science fiction books, all sort of classics, and each with a different guest. Um, this episode, our book is Ice by Anna Kavan. Uh, Anna Kavan. I, that's a weird name to say out loud. I've never done that before. <laughs> <laughs> um, and our guest is Charlotte Geeter, who is also, like Seth, um, a returning guest. She was on last December's episode, so it's been like exactly a year when we read, um, what was that called? Rupetta, Rupetta. together. Yeah, Rupetta. Um, so Charlotte, uh, you're a poet. You do other stuff. Do you want to talk a little bit about your work and where people can find you online? Um, yeah, so I am um, at Tambourine on Twitter um, and I don't really do that much elsewhere online at the moment. Um, I'm kind of under slash unemployed right now. Um, so if anyone, if anyone's looking for a poetry editor, you can get hold of me on Twitter. Um, but yeah, I mostly just yell about books and create digital <laughs> poetry and that kind of thing. Uh, you do these really cool, like Matt, you probably don't know about this because Matt is not, unlike me, a Twitter head, um, a tweep. Uh, but Charlotte <laughs> does these really cool poems where she like trains artificial intelligence to like write poetry in the form of like various other poets. It's, it's yeah. really I actually, cool. No, I actually did know about that because um, when Charlotte was a guest before, I Googled you. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff, and I really like it. I think it's really cool. Mm-hmm. I am a big fan of um, pushing the envelope of literature, and yes, you know, I, I like. I'm trying to avoid using like buzzwords to describe these sort of <laughs> things that 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 might include. But but what you do, I think, does that. It, it is a envelope pushing stuff. It is really cool and interesting and new. Thank you. Um, the problem, part of the problem with it is that I think um, neural net and like artificial intelligence is such like a buzzword thing at the moment by mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. kind of design. But yeah, so um, I started out creating like a Twitter bot, which um, I had created a couple of years ago. And then this year, um, I've been playing around a lot with open AI um, and training it on like Emily Dickinson and Hopkins. My favorite thing to do is to train a bot on some long dead poet and then make it write me poems based on the line, I love poetry or, oh, sorry, I love the internet or I hate the internet or um, I love Twitter and I hate Twitter. Um, <laughs> wow. That's like the, that's like the, I don't know, the digital humanities version of like the decision problem or something like that. There's something really like perfect about about that, which I love. <laughs> it's it's really cool stuff. Do you is it am I crazy? Do you have like a chapbook coming out of this poetry soon? Um, I have a pamphlet out okay, um, okay. from a tiny micro press um, based in Edinburgh called um, If a Leaf Fools Press, which is um, edited by the poet Sam Riviere, who's done a lot of cool internet stuff himself. But um, yes, it's called Against My Own Feelings, which is a line from a poem the bot wrote about poetry. Um, <laughs> what and... What do you think is the proper nomenclature? Do you say the bot wrote it or did you somehow like commission the bot to write it? Or like, how do you discuss that? 
I find it very difficult to discuss. Actually, I presented <laughs> a paper earlier this year on like um, Twitter poetry, where I was like Twitter bot poetry, where I was talking about the idea of whether the bot created it or I created it. I kind of think of it in terms of I created it using the bot. Um, mm. So I kind of think of it as a tool, but it is. Yeah. I think there's a lot of weird ways people talk about AI when they train it and stuff. A lot of people like the part of the meme on Twitter when people. Mostly people say this when they haven't actually trained an AI, but I assume it came from when people did train AI. They'll say, I forced a bot to read a thousand pages of the Miller report <laughs> and here's what it wrote. And then they'll post up like a fake from the Miller report. And people, I, I find that very odd, the way people act as if it's like a person that they sat down in a dark room were like, you have to read this. Um, but I mean, yeah. and But then it is something that we're trying to, make into its own intelligence so i don't know Mm. kind of both um i published it and i didn't um i didn't seek permission from anyone (laughs) Um, you didn't start a poem with a line like can i publish this poetry (laughs) yeah Yeah. these are these are terrific terrific questions right (laughs) we could spend all day talking (laughs) we really could um so that's all very cool you all should check out charlotte on again it's like at tambourine with a u spelt the british way on twitter um yeah so we are here to talk about a book that matt has spoken about on several previous episodes um and so when we were doing this you know, we had this idea of let's do a month where we go through some like kind of older fiction, maybe problematic fiction, mm-hmm. maybe stuff that like by authors we wouldn't otherwise read and just kind of pump it all into one month and kind of like play around with it that way. And um, we thought Ice would be a fun book to read. Um, <laughs> I had never read it before. I did not know what we were getting ourselves into. Um, why don't Matt, why don't you describe a little bit like your history of the books? You're the person who's read it before. I don't know if you read, reread it for this, just like talk about it a little bit and then we can, you know, um, and we can also talk about Anna a little bit. This is like, usually for these episodes, we do like a spoiler free episode and then a spoilerific episode. I think this book, we're just going to kind of be spoilers from the get go. That said, like, what is even a spoiler for this book? I don't know if that's a concept that really makes sense. So like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> listen or don't. Yeah, a spoiler would be describing our like psychological states post book. <laughs> right. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just, there's no other way to talk about it at all. So um, <laughs> no, uh, as, as Adrian has sort of hinted with that comment, it, this is a book that doesn't really have a lot in the way of plot. So I guess well, let's just do a little book book facts real quick. So Anna Kavan is the pen name, or actually also official name, like she mm. changed her name to Anna Kavan, of a woman that was born with the name Helen Woods. Um, she had a very interesting life um, uh, that uh, I think she was born around the turn of the 20th century and... 1901. Uh, yeah. And died in 1968. Um, uh, and... So she, she, she kind of, and she was, she was British, um, although she was born in the South of France. Um, and she had a very interesting life where she traveled all over the world. She was married several times and divorced several times. She was addicted to heroin for a lot of her life. She had a lot of, um, she was sort of in and out of institutions devoted to the care of people with psychological disorders. Um, that is a term that is sort of maybe anachronistic, but uh, I'm not sure what the best way to describe it would be. 
Um, she had a lot of very important relationships with people who were involved in different kinds of psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic traditions. Um, and she had almost sort of two literary careers. She had this sort of initial literary career under her birth name, uh, where she wrote a series of novels and other things. Um, uh, and then she, after her, um, uh, second divorce, uh, I think she changed her name officially to the name of a character of one of her previous books, <laughs> Anna Kavan, and <laughs> which is fascinating. Wow. <laughs> and, um, that. yeah. And, and then, um, with that new name continued to write and, uh, ice was, was published, um, under her, her, her sort of second name, Anna Kavan and all of the things that she published and wrote after the name change tend to be pretty substantially different from the things that she wrote before the name change. At least that's what I've read. A lot of people mm -hmm. seem to agree on that. I've only ever read Ice, so um, I'm not qualified to sort of speak to that directly. But uh, yeah, and, and the final thing I, I should have probably mentioned before is that she um, attempted suicide three times. Um, for a while, people tended to report her actual death as a successful suicide, but um, I think the consensus now is that actually it was just heart failure. Um, that's what uh, a variety. That's what like uh, two or three different different. Um, I've also that I've seen read seem stuff to relating it to her heroin addiction, so it is possible there's some element of like heart failure caused by some sort of complications due to her health due to the heroin sure yeah addiction. that that that's a level of detail I just don't know right um, yeah she was in her late sixties in the late sixties so. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So not young, but also like not old either to die of natural causes. Yeah. Right. Um, so very, very interesting life. She also, I, the, the final thing I also should have mentioned this before is that she just traveled very extensively. She spent mm -hmm. a lot of time in a lot of different places in continental Europe, in the UK, in America, in New Zealand. She spent some time in Bali. She traveled a lot and she traveled not always in, she also lived in Burma for a period of time when it was, um, officially recognized as Burma, uh, and was a, a, a colony of the British empire. Um, she, uh, she was also really always... into cars apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which makes some sense. Um, but like she really liked fast and like muscle, like the equivalent of the time of like muscle cars, like powerful cars were an interesting, like a thing she worked on. Which definitely comes up in the book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um and yeah and, and and she's been under so she she when she was alive was was not particularly well known um mm -hmm. as an author and after her death although the novel ice was very successful after her death um she didn't really live to see the literary success of the novel ice um but um she nonetheless was kind of f relatively quickly faded into obscurity and then has undergone a serious revival in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, one of the interesting things about her like fading into obscurity is that her work was, she, she was sort of championed by a lot of um, important authors um, of the 60s and important feminist authors. Like Anais Nin was an enormous champion of hers, mm -hmm. um, along with um, Brian Aldiss, um, and uh, a number of other authors. And, and she was often associated with like Nouveau Romain uh, authors of the 60s. Um, she, she kind of like invented the Nouveau Romain before it was invented by other people in some sense. But um, 
but you know dis- but unlike a lot of those other authors she kind of she kind of slipped into the into the cr- through the cracks so to speak whereas somebody like um uh, who wrote the wide sargasso sea does anyone Jean remember Reese. yeah jean reese um was a uh, was a almost exact contemporary of of anna kavan's but jean reese of course is like much more famous mm-hmm. or, or was at least much more famous from from the 60s on and Wide Sargasso Sea, you know, has been compared to to ice a number of times by a number of people, and uh, came out like only a year before. And so it's a kind of a very interesting comparison, um, mm-hmm. I think. Anyway, that it that's um, that's a sort of capsule so of her. Before we go any further, I think it might be worth doing a little bit of the like content warnings, um, just because I want to start to ask you about your like personal, you know, experience with the book, Matt, and. Um, yeah, so again, kind of like that's the equivalent of spoilers here. Um, also, there's a lot of uh, like this book is brutal. We've read a couple of like brutal books like in a row for this podcast because we're reading <laughs> yep. things kind of out of order. So like, whoa. But like there are like <laughs> multiple on-screen rape scenes. There's just a lot of discussion of um, various kinds of abusive relationships uh, there's some like kind of like weird racist stuff going on at certain points, um, yeah. like colonial mm-hmm. racism and then racism, racism. Um, and there is some, um, and also I, I, it's one of these books that is like from the point of view of a pretty like malicious actor. And it's unclear to what degree the book is like judging him versus presenting him versus like maybe even like agreeing with his own self-perception or not. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the stuff we'll be talking about. So, um, but yeah, I mean like the biggest thing is like very graphic like on-screen rape scenes multiple times is also kind of like if you read this book like you should know that going into yeah and abusive violence of other of other sorts yeah domestic violence like very kind of upfront is there anything i'm missing charlotte or matt that i um i would say that there's like a particularly like aestheticized um like aspect to the violence against women both the rape and like the um Mm-hmm. non-sexualized but it's still sexualized violence um mm-hmm. and there's a lot of like talk about her being very childlike um, when it comes to the violence against the, the woman in the book there's like one woman yeah. um so yeah i would say in particular if you have problems with like um, abuse against children you might find this book very hard going even though she's not actually literally a child but the book mm-hmm. is very much um talking about her as if she is it infantilizes her like all the men yeah. do. Also, there I just remember this. There's some like very weird ableism in like the last chapter that kind of like pops up out of nowhere, um, as well. Uh, oh yeah. So yeah. that's a good point. You know, I I mean like it definitely. This is part of why we're doing all of these books together in this way. Is that like we're reading books that are very much like of a certain period of time in like literary and science fiction history and like the shit just like comes up over and over and over again in all of these books that we're reading. Um, and so it's there <laughs> be, be cognizant of it. And I think our, we haven't recorded the pre-read for this month yet, but I think our pre-read will be largely talking about the like experience of like reading like problematic authors and literature and stuff and like how to do that as well as we know how to. So anyway, Matt, like what is your personal experience with this book? And like, why has it been one that you've like referenced many times? Yeah. So I actually, um, sort of stumbled upon this book many years ago in a bookstore. I don't even remember where I had never heard of it before. I saw it, um, in like a used science fiction section. Mm. 
and I, I sort you know, I, I often, you know, go looking through used science fiction sections. And so I sort of naturally was like, oh, I've never heard of that. Let me check it out. And it was relatively short. And so I thought, oh, I'll just get it. I'll read it, you know. And so I read it and um, <laughs> I was completely unprepared <laughs> yeah. for for the intense, like, you know, experience of reading this book. Um, but it sort of stayed with me. And, and then I later um, I picked up the. Uh, Penguin did a new edition of the book, um, and I picked that up, and it was really—I don't know—I—I—I I, I, I found it to be something that um, that Wait, stuck with me. You've read this and, book multiple times. Uh, no, well, oh, okay. I, I sort of skimmed it. I, okay. I didn't actually like. Read that's it. not a thing you normally do. That's right. That's right. It's not. Um, I've never. I haven't actually like like page by page read it mm-hmm. more than mm-hmm. once, but but I've sort of skimmed through it a few times. Um, I found like the feeling I got from this book was that it sort of like almost filled in some blanks that I had in terms of thinking about the history of, uh, of science fiction. Hmm. I, I, I have this sort of constant sense that, that there's this like vast, you know, narrative and psychological territory that I'm sort of unaware of. Um, and um, because, you know, growing up, I read a lot of the sort of most famous stuff, you know, I read like the, the famous golden, golden silver age people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and like, if somebody wasn't famous, I probably didn't read them. Um, and like famous is a, is a, is a, is an attribute that like changes over time and like depends on a lot of things. And so that just meant that there were like all sorts of people I, I never heard of as a kid. And, and kind of knowing that I, 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 I've always felt like, oh, there's this submerged part of the iceberg you know, that's always out there that I kind of am, am really, really curious about, but don't necessarily know how to how to see. And like stumbling on this book was like feeling like somebody gave me a pair of special goggles that let me see under the ocean into the submerged part of the iceberg. Hmm. And, and I just like was really sort of moving and powerful to me. Um, hmm. In addition to like feeling like this new secret knowledge. So I don't know. Yeah, I always it, it always like. I always think of it like in a lot of contexts and, and it, it always kind of comes up in my head and I always want to sort of, right. you know, in the right circumstances, push it on other people because it's not a book you just like willy nilly push on other people, you know? Jesus. For real. <laughs> um, okay. That makes a lot of sense. Charlotte. So this was like, you know, we, I kind of came to you with the idea of this book being like, oh, it's like, you know, kind of obscure culty, like female written science fiction from the sixties. Like, that seems like your kind of jam. <laughs> yes. Well, it's interesting. So I'd never read it before and I'd never read Anna Kavan before, but um, I had I had been aware of the book for quite a long time. But um, so I came to science fiction kind of a few times. So as a teenager, I got quite into some Philip K. Dick and some Asimov, mm. weirdly. Um, and then um, I didn't really start reading it again until the last couple of years. But um, as a teenager and kind of through my 20s, um, I have been really into um, experimental literature, experimental fiction and poetry. Um, and um, especially when I was about 18, 19, I got really into... Um, B.S. Johnson, who's a British um, experimental novelist, um, and then there's a few other writers who are kind of um, thought of in the same kind of um, scene as him, which was kind of like the late 60s through the 70s. Um, so B.S. Johnson, um, Anne Quinn, who's just whose stuff has started being republished, um, and a few others. Actually, I found it quite interesting what you were saying about um, her, um, Anna Kavan, being much less well-known than Jean Rhys um, now, because um, I, I think part of the reason that, uh, that um, Anna Kavan is um is kind of uh, semi-forgotten although this book is kind of in print with various in various like classic editions 
is that I think a lot of modernist fiction, a lot of English, um, like British specifically modernist fiction, is very much forgotten um, or like kind of papered over in um, favour of things that are kind of more in the, like the Victorian realist mode. Mm. Um, and, um, and and this book is very much um, this book is very much in a kind of odd. Um, odd place where it's both experimental fiction and science fiction so I think people come to it from two different scenes but because it's kind of both people who are kind of expecting one thing come into it and like oh um, you know if you pick this up (laughs) just thinking oh yeah Brian Aldiss like this it's gonna be like Brian Aldiss you might be a bit like um, and then and then you know um, I, I, I when I read it um, I think I'd, I'd thought of her in the past along with the writer Jane Gaskell I don't know if you've ever read any Jane Gaskell um, she is did she do North and South no Uh-oh. so that's Elizabeth Gaskell from the 19th century oh sorry century. Yeah. no 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 the <laughs> yeah. reason I think that's interesting is when I've googled Jane Gaskell in the past I've stuff has come up being like she was the great great niece or whatever of Elizabeth yeah. Gaskell but I couldn't find an actual source for that I think she grew up in Australia but then moved to London anyway oh, um, right. Jane Gaskell is a writer I, who's long out of print and is still alive possibly but um, she hasn't had anything to do with publishing for like 20-30 years but hmm. she wrote a lot of incredibly incredibly weird science fiction her first book was published when she was 14 and it's all mm. like it's all like weird psychosexual incredibly odd and creepy but yeah um, cool I don't know. I, I find that cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's very good. Um, extremely fucked up. Um, <laughs> although I think Anna Command is more fucked up. But yeah, basically, I'd been aware of it for a long time. But I have like, I generally avoid dystopias and anything that's going to set off my like apocalypse anxiety. So I'd always kind of avoided it, although I wanted to read it. And so when when um, you know Adrian said, "Oh, do you want to do this one?" I was like, "Yes, I will go for it." <laughs> and and. I mean, a large part of my problem with reading dystopias is if it's too realistic, which wasn't really a problem here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. But yeah, basically, uh, she was like on the periphery of like a lot of things I'm interested in. And it was mm. interesting to finally dive into her um, because I think she's she is very it is very much at the nexus point of a lot of things I'm interested in while also being like an extremely harrowing experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about you, Adrian? I'll give my short review here, which is that, like, I read this book this week. I had heard about it a number of times from Matt. I had suggested it to Charlotte, knowing, like, nothing more about it than, like, what Matt had told me very briefly. Um, And I fucking hated it. (laughs) I was (laughs) so mad the whole time that I was reading this book that you made me read this book. I suggested it to Charlotte, not knowing what it was. Like I was so fucking livid the whole time. And like, no, it's it's okay. Like I, I, you know, it's like I went through my own whole like personal journey reading this book, and oh, like man. I'm, I'm not sorry, actually dude. mad at you, Matt. Um, just just to be okay. clear, but there was there were moments where it was like I kind of noticed that feeling of like I'm so mad reading this book that I'm mad at everything, and I'm not sure mm-hmm. if I hate the book or hate the experience of reading the book and like Mm. that's kind of like what i hope to get out of this episode is to like figure out which of those two things it is because i'm still like not Mm. quite sure um but yeah i found it just like an utter slog to read um i came in knowing like essentially nothing about it except for that matt you had recommended it as kind of like you know 
experimental fiction. Um, yeah, I, I, I will I, say I, I, do I reg- wish I had had it spoiled to some degree. Like I wish yeah, I knew yeah, what I, I was getting into. I, I do somewhat regret not providing more information because <laughs> yeah, I think I, this I, is a book you you sort of yeah I, the, the the yeah. Right, right. Sometimes I get, I get kind of, I overly romanticize my own experience of like reading things cold, so to speak. Yeah. But, but But I uh, don't like to read things cold. I know, and and most people would would benefit, I think, from from knowing something about this book. So, so that was that was interesting. I'm sorry about that. No, it's it's okay. I mean, like, you really don't need to be because I'm fine. You know, it's like it's not actually a problem. It's more of a like. Well, I could be. It it wasn't. I yeah. I I I regret it, and I think I shouldn't have done it. And I think the fact that you're fine is because you're, you know, uh, (laughs) it has nothing to do with the fact that it was a bad idea on my part. (laughs) (laughs) Fair, fair, fair. Um, But like, it was a very, you know, I don't know. Like, there's also there's this other beyond sort of the like brutality of the book, right? Because that is like one aspect of this. There's also another aspect of it, and I think this is where maybe we can start to into actually talking about it of um like what it means and does it mean anything at all and that was actually a big chunk of my like frustration while reading the book was this feeling of like you know i mean i've read a lot of experimental fiction i tend to like a lot of experimental fiction and i think because i've read so much experimental fiction published both before and after this book um, I was constantly comparing, like I had a hard time reading it as itself without constantly comparing it to David Markson or even Kurt Vonnegut or, you know, Chris Beckett and some of his more recent works and like, you know, stuff like both modern and written before. Um, and so I had this strange feeling of like, I'm reading this really brutal stuff and like, you know, to some degree, that's just like hard because I've read a lot of brutal stuff recently. Um, and also, like, I don't know if it means anything. And like that to me is sort of the almost like if there's something unforgivable, it's like brutality. And it's not even there's no there's no plot. It's just like circumstance after circumstance. The like another thing it does is that the um, and this is like a me problem, but I really have a hard time reading novels where perspective shifts without there being some sort of like formal aspect to that perspective shift. Like if perspective shifts between chapters, that's fine. If perspective shifts within sentences, I get so fucking livid. It's the reason I've never read Dune. I mean, I've read Dune three times. I've never finished Dune um, because that just I it makes me angry in a way that is like really difficult to like pinpoint why (laughs) and like anger such a weird response to that literary device Um, but yeah so that was sort of like my experience of it was coming in totally fresh and being like what the actual fuck am I reading right now (laughs) Um, the one thing I will say too is that like by the end like the very final chapter or two the main character, the viewpoint character begins to reflect a little bit on his actions. And it's like very, towards the very end where you get the sense of like, Oh, like maybe I'm not actually meant to take him at face value. Cause like, I don't take him at face value. Like I, as a you know human being who lives in 2019, like recognize this as an abusive relationship. I recognize all the ways in which he's delusional, blah, blah, blah. But I wasn't sure if the book recognized any of that. Mm, and it was yeah. only towards the last chapter where I'm like, well, the book at least recognizes some of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think she, 
I mean, it reads to me as very much like a kind of um, complete deconstruction and condemnation of um, of relationship structures and of the way that men relate to women um, in the 60s. Um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, I mean, there's something quite devastating about in the ending where he kind of talks about how he suddenly realises that he can be tender um, when mm-hmm. they're in this car and he's like... Well, oh, it doesn't really matter now because we're about to die. <laughs> um, and then, but, but the, ha- the very, very last thing yeah. is that he's like comforted by his gun. I like know, the last yes. sentence is my yes, gun is I in know. my pocket. And I was reading it on, so I read it on a mixture of ebook and audiobook, which is a very Ooh. weird way to read it. Um, yeah. But um, I had, uh, but, um, it's on Scribed um, as an audiobook. And I, I was like, I can't keep reading this. I'm going to need to listen to it while walking around. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I mean, when it constantly talks about how thin her wrists are and how, like... Brittle and, and, her bones and, are. Yeah, and he spends the whole book, like, searching for her and then, like, seeing her die and then seeing her die and then seeing her die and then Ugh. she's gone off somewhere. And But to me, there was no way to read that that wasn't like, oh, my God, Anna Kavan is talking about the ways in which um men aestheticize women i mean i found it really interesting to think mm. about it in terms of being from the 60s and it might be that i'm just weirdly obsessed with the 60s at the moment um but um like she'd written an early draft of it in 64 which is interesting because it was published in the late 60s but i think mm. it's kind of 67 uh, its I think. origin point yeah its origin point is kind of the early 60s so i assume she wasn't writing it that long after like the cuban missile crisis but mm-hmm. um and and there's a lot of like nuclear anxiety and stuff in it. Yeah. But um but 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 before I went into it, I was a bit like, is this gonna be a book about nuclear winter? And, and I mean, you know, that's obviously in there, but I very much see it as like it's about like the horror of like relating to to people in like personal relationships when we know we're all gonna die and no one is going to and no one is going to improve and and there's all these questions about like you know if we try to improve if we try to get somewhere better or if we're just gonna like you know live in the moment of like these terrible relationships um but yeah i mean i also thought there was something weird in so the book is kind of about, uh, as far as it's about anything, these like recurring love triangles between mm-hmm. the girl, the warden, or her husband, or whatever, mm-hmm. and the the, the narrator, um, and they kind of keep coming and like reconfiguring, and it's always kind of a she's with the other guy, the other guy's really brutal, he tries to take her away from the other guy, and she's like, well, you're no better, and mm-hmm. and and he doesn't want to take her somewhere better, he just wants to be the one to be brutal to her, mm-hmm. you know, he wants to be the one to do violence to her, he says quite explicitly, but there's also some really interesting stuff when he meets with the other man, he's always like, oh, you know, I felt like a connection. And yeah. I found there was almost something, there was something kind of like homosocial slash uh, under the surface sexual about that. Like um, he was always like talking about how how um, mm-hmm. he was like really pleased to be in the company of the other man. The other man had a str- had like a good waist and like strong shoulders. Right, yeah. And Piercing her eyes. Yes. And he's like, he's like kind of, and so he's all extremely aestheticized, but he's like super aestheticizing his relations to this guy in what reads to us as like a sexual way, but to him is very much like homosocial as opposed to a sexual mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And then with the woman, it's all just like, oh, you know, all her brittle bones. And, and he like sexually gets off on the idea of like breaking and destroying her. Right. Um, and right. so I kind of was reading that like written on the world around them as well and like you know like the impossibility of things growing and 
And um, but I mean, I feel like I'm just going off on like loads of tangents. So because everything no, I was no, reading, no. I was like totally fascinating. <laughs> but but um, but I mean, when I was reading about her biography, um, so she yeah, she travelled around a lot, but she moved to London in the early forties. Um, and I think she, and I assume she was living there for some point through the forties. I think that's where she was living in the sixties. Um, she did experience things, the Blitz, yeah. Yeah, well, well, but also I was thinking specifically about after the Blitz, or like, but as mm. well as during the Blitz, um, because all the stuff about like the raised, like the endless, nameless cities where you know she kind of would <laughs> see bit that he kind of sees bits of them as like these living places, and then they're kind of all bombed out and destroyed, but then there are people living in there. That I was like, oh fuck, this is about London after World War Two, because for decades after the war, you know people were living in bombed out places kids were playing in them um i've read like accounts of kids who like were kids who died because they were playing in bombed out buildings and they just like you know fell in on them mm-hmm. but um and and if you like if you see films that are shot in london um, there's a really great film called hue and cry which is like a fun children's film but it's about oh, children like taking down criminals and stuff made by ealing in like i guess the 50s but like the kids spend all their time like climbing in and out of these like bombed out buildings being like this is great and it's like um is it is it anyway but yes i very much felt like it was kind of shaped by i mean obviously it's shaped by nuclear war but i i felt like it was almost more about like the aftermath of world war ii and knowing that there's like a coming Mm-hmm. disaster mm-hmm. coming for you whether that coming disaster is just your regular death like we've all got a disaster coming for us or whether it's nuclear war or whether it's another relationship and yeah mm. so that's and so i found it super interesting and i loved it i was like underlining all of her like writing about la- like cities and like people and then i was like oh i don't want to reread this <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i i definitely identify with that <laughs> yeah so that's that's why I was so like like Matt, you mentioned you'd picked up another edition. I was like, wait, this is the book of all books that you reread? <laughs> no, no, no. It would be very um, difficult to reread it start to finish. There is yeah, one I- um sentence that I really enjoyed. The like the prose level writing like didn't do a whole lot for me, but there was one paragraph that like stood out to me enough that I took a picture of it, and it was um otherwise all was silent. No sounds of traffic of bells or voices came from the land. This town of ruins waited in under in utter silence under the brooding mountains. I thought of long, narrow, ancient ships, vast collections of loot preserved in barrows, winged helmets, drinking horns, great heavy ornaments of gold and silver, piles of fossilized bones. It looked a place of the past of the dead. And like, I think to your point, Charlie, I mean, it's like very much about this like sense of like, you know, ancient ruins or like modern bombed out cities and the like connection between those two. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, so the first place he travels to seems to be fairly obviously Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and so when he's going there, this is kind of at the beginning of the book, there's all him talking about like, I don't know if he uses the word Viking, maybe he does, but there's all this talk about like, you know, what we think of as like yeah. Viking stuff. So right. like horned helmets or drinking horns or whatever. Um, and also when he goes anywhere, he can speak the language. It's like mm-hmm. fine. He he, right. um, he very, well, so 
I have I have another thing to say about that about the aspect of him being able to speak the language everywhere. But um, but there's very much like this sense of him going to like you know the place with the fjords. Like you're like okay right. Norway. Right. Um, it's the only time that I can really guess where he is, apart from when he's on like these tiny islands, you know, looking at the monkeys singing, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I guess I'm guessing is could be Indonesia. It's because Bali, it's got loads I of think. Islands. Bali, yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, yeah. When you said oh she spent some time in Bali, I was like okay that's probably where that is. Um, oh, and there's a bit where he's like, there's like one paragraph where he's taking part in warfare. Where I'm like, is he like a mercenary in the Vietnam War? Um, <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. But, I haven't considered that, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the bits of kind of like where he's like enacting colonial violence. But right. yeah, it's, and so he kind of, and when he's leaving Norway, which has been like really inhospitable and, you know, he's, it, no one's wanted to deal with him. It was hard to find anywhere to stay. And there's like one street that people are living on. When he leaves it, he like looks back and he like sees a vision of it, like as like a living, wonderful place. And he's like, oh, that's not what it was like when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the fact that he can speak the language everywhere um, and, and the fact that whatever he, wherever he wants to go, whatever he wants to do, it's like, okay, sure, yeah, we'll do this for you. Um, there's a quote from the, about the novel which said that um, early readers, um, this is from the Wikipedia, but I read it somewhere else as well. It says, early readers describe the novel as a cross between Kafka and the Avengers, which is like the British <laughs> right. spy, spy exactly. program, the Avengers. Right, and not he, the, not the Marvel much, thing. Yeah, well, it very much reads to me. And the, again, this could just be because I'm obsessed with the 60s, specifically the 60s show, The Man from Uncle, um, right now. But it very much read to me as like a weird, like dystopic take on like 60s spy fiction. Right. Because he can just go anywhere he wants to go. He can speak to anyone. He can like, he, he can kind of, he has friends in power and mm-hmm. they will get him on like these various covert missions and he can mm-hmm. just rock up somewhere and like be a mercenary for a while. Right. Or, you know, when he's trying to find her, he will essentially go undercover. He'll be like, oh, I'm writing a book about, you know, this town or, mm-hmm. oh, I'm, uh, yep. it'll be like, oh, then I wrote radio broadcasts for like three weeks. Yeah. There's also this <laughs> fascinating thing that'll happen where he's like at this place. He doesn't know anyone. He's like trying to find her and then he'll receive a message. And it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. from whom? How? how? Yeah. From, from what? What message? Yeah. <laughs> See, so I, I, I really love, because... I love that. Yeah, I loved it because I was like, oh, good. She doesn't feel the need to get bogged down and three pages being like, <laughs> right. and then I went to the post office. and so, But but yeah, I mean, it very much reads to me like a take on this idea of like the British Secret Service agent who can go anywhere in the world. And, Absolutely. You know, yeah. And he's fucking I, miserable and he yeah. just wants... <laughs> right. Like, I, do I, I, I do see that. But to me, when I read it, I think the, the dominant like sort of feeling I had from that is like, oh, this is an expression of what it feels like to look up from under the grinding heel at the like patriarchy. And it, it must feel as though they're all just in it together. They all oh, just yeah. kind of collaborate mm-hmm. behind the scenes. It's this mm-hmm. actual sort of vast conspiracy that, you know, they don't always agree on everything. But in the end, what it means is that any one of them is going to be able to draw on the entire resources of the empire of men and destroy yeah. you with them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, and and when she's kind of like, well, you're in league with him, to the narrator, and he's like, I'm not in league with him. Like, yes, you are. That was so perfect. <laughs> that was so perfect because, of course, to him, it doesn't seem as though he's in league. But like... 
like I, th- and that's what I love about this book so much because to me this is like it, it's it's like a dream. It's like the dream dreamt by someone who has been completely broken and destroyed by this like impossible empire that is all around her that is invisible but also visible that is allied to itself but also an enemy of itself that is um secret but also obvious and she's been destroyed by this and now kind of like as she like fades into death she like dreams back upon it (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it's this incredible sort of cry of despair that i've never experienced like so in such a pure form anywhere else Mm -hmm. I, i and that's what i love about it is i love that it gives me this it gives me this emotional reality that I've never gotten anywhere else, but that, but that is so real. And and that's the thing I think that it means, Adrian, to sort of, you know, kind of circle back to your question before. To me, what it means is it's not just nihilism. If it were just nihilism, mm-hmm. then there would be no real human emotion behind it. But in, but in fact, like I perceive there to be this sort of actual individual single person whose real lived experience kind of like feeds the, the, the sort of narrative engine at every, at every turn. And who like is, is like honestly expressing herself kind of in this, with Mm -hmm. this incredibly sort of like, like uh, with an honesty that is like unadulterated, even by like any kind of sense of plot or narrative or storytelling. It's just like pure her pure subconscious just like streaming out like onto the onto the page um and i i feel like i could wax poetic about this book like forever even <laughs> though like to me also like i i i also had the experience reading it of, of feeling like very upset i guess you know like mm-hmm. I, I i'm not even sure how else to what other word to use because it's like right. this sort of inchoate feeling of like badness <laughs> right um yeah well and it I wasn't think... <clears throat> oh go ahead oh no i was just gonna say i think part of it is also that the prose is so kind of flat and affectless so mm. when it's talking about things that are like really fucking brutal and just like uh in- yeah kind of that would seem nihilist um it kind of forces you to confront that and to to bring your emotions forward yeah um but yeah, I mean, it's it, yeah, it's like a really devastating book, and I think you're right. One of the things I was also thinking with it um, was when when it's kind of talking about like this is what it's like to be um, to, to kind of exist in this world, kind of and, and be constantly crushed by it, and you know, to constantly feel like you're being killed and then revived just so you can mm. be killed, and no matter where you go, you can't escape from it. Was also the what whiteness stands for in this book. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot about how white she is and, and, mm. and you know, the ice is white. There's a lot of other stuff about white, which ties into it, but there's a right. lot about like this idea of her as like this infantilized, like white woman who's kind right. of constantly, um, also Platinum traveling around hair. Yeah. Um, also mm-hmm. traveling around kind of as a colonist kind of as yeah. being <clears throat> used by and, and searched for by these guys while the other women or like the women who are native there are kind of like beneath his notice or like just take on the role of like you know this is the housekeeper i'm going to steal the keys from or whatever like right. while i'm staying in her house um and so there's yeah i mean i don't know how, to what extent that was intention intention you know this was written by a british like rich white possibly aristocrat in the 60s she but. she was indeed an aristocrat um and in and in, in not only that but she spent time living 
in the household of a another rich aristocrat who was a colonial official in Burma. And so she saw, yeah. you know, firsthand what it was what the colonial experience was. But I think the the the, the ambiguity that I also really well, wonder about Well, she saw firsthand is, what the experience of being the colonizer was. Yeah, 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 right. But that that's that's what I was just about to say. The ambigu- ambiguity that I that I wonder about is like what did she think of that? Did she think mm-hmm. it was bad? <laughs> did she not care? I, it's very unclear to me, like, what she thought about it at all, if anything. Um, I read a really interesting quote from her, which someone tweeted out, because um, I was searching for her name on Twitter to see what kind of things people were saying about her. And um, because a collection of her short writing has just been republished or published for the first time. But I read an interesting quote from her about which people are using to like argue that we should vote in the upcoming election, um, which sure, fine. If you're in Britain, vote, please. (laughs) But she says, and after all, this society that we live in is what suits us. We made it, not God or some exterior force. We voted for factories, gas masks, tanks, torpedoes, dive bombers, flying fortresses, commandos, parachutes, sirens, famines, concentration camps, Lydices, Hamburgs, leaders, fan dancers, machinery, machine slaves, psychiatrists, alcohol, drugs, dehydrated food, artificial sunlight, double summertime, blackouts, contraceptives, jitterbugs, WAAFs, WRENs, ATS, poodle dogs, police dogs, schizophrenia, talking lovebirds, gonorrhea, pyorrhea, anti-Semitism, spiritualism, collectivism, and so on and so forth. This is our world, and if those are the things we want in it, it's our business alone. If we want to turn our world into a mathematically systematized confusion of dead machines instead of a slight pause in eternity, where men can love and create and eat and laugh and walk about in the sun, no God or anything else is coming along to stop us. (laughs) Um, And it made me think... She probably wasn't a fan of um, of like the current regime at whatever time she wrote that, but um, but you know it doesn't specifically say yeah the British Empire is bad and colonialism is bad, but I kind of feel like that could well be where she fell down on it. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, God, man, there's so many things now I want to I want to talk about with this. It's like I want to take two steps back and five steps forward at the same time. Um, <laughs> a nice one, one, one kind of concrete thing I, I, I want to talk about is this thing that happens over and over again in the book where uh, the, the woman dies, the girl dies. And in particular, like one, so here, actually, sorry, I'm going to take another step back. One of the things I was acutely aware of while reading the book was like, like I said, like I, my response to the book was like, wow, I hate this book. And my immediate response to that was like, or do I hate the experience of reading the book? And like, to what degree is that? Because like the book is like judging me in a way that I feel like seen in a way that I don't like feeling seen, right? Like there's this element of reading this book that is like, you know, condemning the patriarchy, condemning the like system of like the world that I live within and benefit from within. And that's very uncomfortable, right? Like having that sense of like, oh yeah, like this guy really identifies with this other guy and like, oh shit, I identified with one or the other of them at like this point and like, you know, am I am I in league with them as well? Um, definitely like came up with this question of like, is this part of what makes me feel so like uncomfortable reading this? In addition to just like the utter brutality of it, which also made me feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but I think too, there's this thing that happens where 
over and over again, there's this sort of like experimental turn where like it just the sort of setting changes, maybe the point of view changes or maybe like what's happening around him changes. And it's all very kind of um, like abstract and almost like psychedelic in some ways where he's like somewhere and then he's in a different place and there's like a war going on all around him. And or, or like, you know, all of a sudden, like he's walking into this building and then he like sees her getting raped by the warden, even though like he's not in that room probably right. It's like, it all gets very kind of like this abstract thing. And, um, and again, she like dies and dies again in these kind of visions he has. And one thing that I was trying to like measure out while reading this, is this a, you know, is this like a representation of his sort of fantasy world, right? Like there's one thing where like, this is the dream of like, you know, this character, the female character, maybe Annika Vaughn herself as like, she's dying as she's been like brutalized by the system. And it's her kind of like dream of the system at that point. Then there's another version where it's like the dream of the system, right? It's the system like fantasizing about, Oh, this like woman who I want to own, and like, I don't have her right now. So like, I'm going to fantasize about her death and her, her brutality, like being brutalized over and over and over again as a way to like control her in my own fantasies and my own dreams. Um, I don't know. And this is sort of like thing that came up for me around this. And it's curious that that happens, you know, the way that that happens is very different when it comes to gender than when it comes to race and colonialism, I guess, I guess is the other thing to kind of tie it to that. Oh yeah, there's so many things that yeah, I I love I love this book too because like no matter which direction you you sort of head out in, like you'll you'll run into like so many things to talk about. <laughs> so um, many icebergs. <laughs> yes. So all right, just like there's sort of two things. I'll say try to say them really quickly uh, and then see what you guys think. One thing is that I, I also experienced this sort of like there's this like cognitive dissonance between the system dreaming itself and like her dreaming the system dreaming itself mm -hmm. and i one way to think about that that i thought about uh, somewhat is is that you know oh this is an expression kind of of how just how broken she is that she can't conceive even of it being her own dream um she can only conceive of the story of herself as being the dream of some other thing some right inhuman thing that destroys her over and over again mm -hmm. um but I think like another way to think about it is like, I do think that there is an element of that, but I think another way to think about it is that it kind of, it, 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 it's, it's like neither, like it, it's sort of, it, it, it's like this sense of, of a dream just existing outside of anything else. Um, mm -hmm. and, and like, no matter which sort of, uh, creator you try to, 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 to like imagine existing, like there are problems with that. And so it sort of spirals back in on itself and it right. becomes this kind of, right. this sort of like. Um, you know, uh, uh, like protagon protagonist less thing. Um, right. So that that and was I, what, yeah. Oh, and I, <laughs> and I just do want to say really quick, like, and I think that's a really important point of like, like what I'm asking is like not not what is the reality here. It's like not no which is really true, right? Because mm -hmm, I think that's mm -hmm. a trap that like especially mm -hmm. kind of like nerdy science fiction fans tend to fall into is like oh what's the truth like what's the secret truth and it's like no there is no secret truth that's right but like how do we interpret this and like what are the like what do different interpretations tell us about like ourselves and the book etc cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so yeah totally. i just wanted to kind of make that clear no no no. i think it's a great point um that that was one thing i thought when you were just talking and the other is that there's this um there's this interesting thing going on that we haven't yet touched on which is that 
the apocalypse is associated with all of these um all of these sort of uh mm-hmm. like dystopian psychodramas or or the sort of horrible reality of 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 existence as as it applies to uh the girl at the center of the story so so it's it's sort of like like you know the 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 kind of destruction of the world itself it's this classic sci-fi literalization of the metaphor where the destruction of the world itself um is kind of inextricably linked with this like you know uh, empire of men destroying her or or this like you know secret conspiracy that everyone else is in on that like represents somehow her mental illness or just like her own desire to destroy herself um all of these sort of different interpretations of what's going on are kind of all linked to each other but also to the to the apocalypse and so it's almost like there's a, a version of this that's a commentary on um the nuclear destruction of, of the, the technologically aided nuclear destruction of the world as expression of like, you know, men dominating women or as expression of the like psychological traumas of being alive in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. The weight of the gun in my pocket was reassuring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the stuff about the, um, about the coming ice, it talks about the idea of like the earth being destroyed by but the language it talks about it in is like i can't i can't remember like the exact images but it talks about it in terms of becoming inert and like um no longer moving and everything becoming like cold and there's very much like a technological link there mm-hmm. um and i found that very interesting uh, along with the stuff about you know these bombed out cities and and kind of the way that he'll often look somewhere and think no one could be living here like this is a place that no one can survive and then he realizes oh you know it's actually a town full of people living um, mm-hmm. in these places mm-hmm. um and it made me think um there's um a really great blog that I'm a big fan of called um I guess it's called Building Blog. It's spelled yeah. like B L D G. Oh yeah, it's Jeff um, yeah. But Jeff Manor, yeah. But um, I've got his book um, from the blog, which came out like five years ago or whatever. But there's a bit in it that I'm always thinking about. I, th- I think it's in the book rather than the blog, but could be both. Where he talks about the idea of, and, and I don't know if it's him or if he's quoting someone. Is this, someone, is this the but... Thief's Guide to the City or is this the Building no, Blog No, no, no. He's got a book okay. called Building Blog right, book. Right. Um, but there's a bit where it talks about like the idea of like buildings in cities as like mineral deposits or like mm. metal deposits mm-hmm. on, like, the, on like the surface of the earth. Mm. And it talks about them in kind of the way that we talk about like natural processes mm. um it talks about these te- it kind of collapses the distinction between them and like human-made technological processes and i was very much like thinking of that and i think one of the th- interesting things towards the end of the book is it seems to me so so there's a bit where he where the main character has like a vision of like some kind of super um superhuman but not even like superhuman some like non-human better than human presence turns up and is like hey we're all living on a in a much better world you want to come and he's a bit like nah because i like following this woman around um (laughs) he like stays but but it kind of comes in a bit when the main character is kind of mourning the loss of all non-human life um and Mm. like natural world um and it seemed to me like it was in some ways trying to like collapse or get outside of like ideas of like 
I mean, obviously, it's it's try, it's a book that doesn't think that much of like humanity, but it's a book, but it's very much like trying to like look forward to like post-human ways of being, I guess, mm. um, which I find quite interesting. Um, again, given how given that it's from the sixties, um, but yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah. And, I think and, there's and, this there's like a really interesting ambivalence about the natural world that's like buried in there somewhere. Where on the one hand, yeah, he mourns the loss of the animals, but but like, what is it that's destroying them? It's this wall of ice. Yeah. It's this, it's this, it's like somehow allied with technology, but it's not technology. It's, 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 it's this incredibly simple natural thing. And the sounds, the sounds that are associated with like the animals, the sort of cries and the, yeah, like and the sound, songs. right. And the sound of the ice is like terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We never find out what the ice is. There is a bit where he talks about it being set off by by like mm -hmm, leaders yeah. during a war so maybe maybe that's as much as we get but it's very much like an image of like a natural of like a like otherworldly natural disaster so it's kind yeah. of all things at once but i mean what i find amazing is that the whole book it's like oh the disaster is coming like everyone knows the disaster is coming right. um and wherever he goes he's like oh was the ice gonna come here <laughs> um, and then he keeps on moving around and yeah i mean i i was just kind of obsessed with that idea of like no matter what happens we are all dead yes <laughs> um, which, that was huge um, through it yeah. which is like the opposite of like when you're reading something with like a messianic view or whatever about like the idea mm -hmm. of everyone being redeemed at the end this book it's kind mm -hmm. of like and then at the end we are all going to be destroyed mm. we're all going to be like these inert bones and rubble um <laughs> there was definitely an element of the book that to me felt a lot like a buddhist death meditation right mm. where like you will sit and like you know often it's done i mean not often anymore but like it kind of historically it's done by like actually going to places where there are dead bodies and like sitting and meditating on like the corpses of dead people um and like relating that to your own experience now the fact that you will someday die um it's still frequently practice in most traditions although not as frequently anymore like amongst you know like fields of dead bodies or whatever um there's something like very much about that kind of like like this book felt like a death meditation in some way like mm. this sense of like we will all die like the end of your life is death mm. and like everything you do should be done or maybe not should be but like everything you do is done with that in mind whether or not it's like consciously in mind yeah 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 um and i kept I, thinking about that while reading it yeah yeah um another one of um like my favorite kind of almost forgotten um like uh, uh 20th century um writers is um sylvia townsend warner who wrote a lot of novels but um for the last few decades of her life just wrote short stories and poetry oh did she write like um, the elf stories yeah, so she had a book oh, that called yeah. Kingdoms of Elfin, which was republished by Handheld Press um, last year. Um, and there's a second volume of the, of, of a few more Elfin stories and, and like fairy tales um, that cats tell their babies, their kittens, coming out <laughs> next year. Um, but one of the things that I think is really interesting about the Kingdoms of Elfin that I was thinking about in relation to this book is the Kingdoms of Elfin um book was published towards the end of her life in the 70s and she was born in the late 19th century so she was like in her late 70s or maybe her 80s when this was published um and there's something extremely cold about the elfin stories um and i think of them very much as like a kind of fantasy uh, 
shaped by the end of life and of like mm. thinking about um like the amount of um, um i'm trying to think of it now because i wrote about it earlier this year but th- th- there's a lot in it i think about the pain of caring about other people um mm. and about like um and, and about how it how it is to exist for so long um as like a kind of very tiring thing um and so those stories are like extremely unsentimental um and um and um and kind of about non-human forms of mm-hmm. like love when love does exist um and so i found myself very much thinking of this alongside that as like fantasies written late in life which are like extremely cold and about like the problems of relating to other people and was wondering about that as like a general thing um mm. but yeah is, i mean i think that's totally fascinating i i really I, I I wouldn't have thought of that at all. Um, I I had a, actually a question for you on the subject of things that this reminds one of. Um, do you have you ever read The House on the Strand? Have either of you by Daphne no. du Maurier? Um, no. The woman who I the think same woman you've who wrote mentioned it on this podcast, yeah, but otherwise I've never heard the, of it. Is, she's the same woman who wrote um, Rebecca. Um, so the house yeah. the, the house on the strand was a book that she wrote and published in exactly the same year that Ice was published, nineteen sixty seven, and it's a science fiction story, sort of, but it's also like a psychological thriller, um, and it's it's in particular it's about the sort of like weird, dreamlike time travel that happens around this house, um, mm. and I, unfortunately I don't like remember the details in great detail, but like, it's it's weirdly similar in some ways to this book. But also extremely different because it's not like this, like cry of despair on the way to death. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But it's kind of like this this marriage between fantastical or science fictional elements and like you know uh, psychosexual drama or psychological drama that like is happening at a very particular time in history. And I I was wondering if either of you had had sort of. If, if that was something you'd, you'd thought about or like similar things that you could compare it to that you think yeah. of that that are in particular sort of like that kind of like 60s style, like Nouveau Romain or like new wave, like like psychological drama thing, but with fantastical elements, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, I've I've mentioned this book on the podcast before and its publishing date was actually in the 80s, I believe. Um, although I think it was written in the 60s. So I'm, I'm not I'm not exactly sure the like... I do know that it was at least begun in the 60s, and that is Wittgenstein's Mistress by David Markson, um, which is the story of, like, it's kind of this, like, diary written by the last woman on Earth who is the last person on Earth, and it is just sort of her, like, talking. Um, It's this first-person kind of stream of consciousness as, as she, like, relates both, like, what she's doing currently, what she's done for the last, like, essentially decades since, like, everyone just disappeared one day. Um, it's very literary. It's very experimental. It's like the structure of the novel is kind of a spiral where it keeps like coming back to the same ideas over and over again and looking at them from different angles than it did previously and collapsing them. You start to see how these ideas are all connected at the end of the day. And, um, that in particular was a book that like I kept thinking of while reading Mm. this book. Um, the other there's a there's two others that came up for me a bunch which were also written around the same time uh one is kurt vonnegut's um uh the ice nine novel cat's cradle which was written before this book and is also about like ice overtaking the entire world 
and like relation between like men and women and you know sort of like different ways of like living and existing in the world um charlotte while we were talking a little bit before the podcast you sent me a quote about this being like samuel beckett but not funny (laughs) (laughs) yes i can't remember where i got that from but um it's it's definitely not me but yes i agree with it um right well like i laughed at that in particular because i had been thinking like oh this is like kurt vonnegut but not funny and i think sort of like in the same realm of types of of types of things yeah um and then the other yeah. one is um, Le Guin's The Word for World is Forest, in particular because of this like whole like the Indris thing, the like singing primates and this sense of like dream states and like existing between waking and dream states and a lot of this kind of stuff mm. that she does maybe more like yeah. formally and less experimentally in that novel feel like kind of like bubbling in, in this one. Totally. Mm. Totally. I, I also thought of... Um, poetry to some extent because mm-hmm. it's such a plotless novel it's such a like dreamlike plotless thing that that you know that's sort of just by virtue of that there's like a lot of poetry but then then i thought like like sylvia platt in particular is kind of like the the whole idea of like dying and being reborn or not being reborn so, well dying over and over again kind of made yeah. me think of sylvia platt and the the sense in which it's this sort of like the sense in which it's a a, a a main character who wants to destroy them themselves, or like maybe doesn't want to destroy themselves, but like I'm thinking of the the girl, of course, not the man, um, not the narrator. Like the girl, I I think of as somebody who who wants to kind of who has this like complicated desire to like n- maybe not be happy, like in some way. Like it's not clear, like to what like how she would describe it but like she keeps making decisions in as much as she is described as sort of making decisions at all it, it like her decision to sort of like for example at the very end her decision to kind of like smile and relax at, when she's in the car with the guy driving off into oblivion you know like she could have continued to be upset perhaps you know yeah but, and she waited for him oh yes exactly left. exactly mm-hmm. Um, those types of decisions are, are like there's a kind of self-destructive component to that, which reminds me of of any kind of like autobi- autobiographical story that involves that kind of self-destructive impulse ever. Um, so I, I there's so many things that we yeah like I almost feel like overwhelmed a little bit about like the the different like uh, uh, references that that come to mind. But yeah. like one thing that just came up now is is that um, especially with regard to like um ice is the is the drug component so so um you know anna kavan was addicted to heroin um critics have gone back and forth to my knowledge about the extent to which heroin is like a major presence in her work certainly some of her work is like explicitly about it although not this um she has a a collection um called julia and the bazooka i think uh, and the bazooka is what she used to call her needle. Um, mm. <laughs> so that's like yeah. explicitly about her her heroin addiction. Um, what do you guys think about the presence of addiction or drugs in this book? Do you think it's there? Do you think it's not there? Do you think it's silly to talk about? Do you think it's worth talking about? I yeah. I think it, it certainly wasn't the... Uh, before I read the book, what, one of the things I knew about it before I read it was, oh, she was a heroin addict and it's supposed to be about heroin. And when I was reading it, I was like, oh, this isn't really about heroin. But 
I think a large part of the like aestheticization of the the woman's like thinness, and it's constantly talking about her in terms of being like bruised, mm. and it's always talking about her like arms and wrists, mm. um, and um, and so I think to an extent it's like there is kind of a background presence, but I think also probably in a lot of the feeling of the book. But mm. as someone who is not an addict, um, and and does not have experience of heroin um there's a point at which i can't really um talk about it but um but certainly there's a lot about the woman's psycho psychological state which um comes in the form of the main character repeating his analysis of her over and over again being like Mm. you know she was bullied as a child and therefore she basically shuts down when Mm. men or anyone behaves in like you know a, a kind of violent and domineering way towards her and and there's like an extent to which uh, the book is kind of about her stuck in this like destructive cycle of like constantly being destroyed and attracted to and repelled by. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, there's definitely an element that you can like read into it there, um, but I'm not sure that it's like particularly surface level beyond like um, a few kind of imagery type types things rather than plot. Right. Mm. I I completely agree with that i had i so going into the book i had read just like a little bit about it and one of the things i had read a bunch of times is that either the ice represented like addiction or that the like woman represented like the man's addiction and his like chasing her was chasing addiction and um it was actually one of the things that um i decided fairly early on and i think held true to the novels like that analysis is like bullshit like that's analysis by people who have like never been addicted to things talking about addiction (laughs) um and i definitely like as someone who has like struggled with addiction a lot in my life like it is it did not read to me like a book that is about addiction in those ways to charlotte's points it's obviously about some of the like psychological like Mm. under innings of addiction like yeah totally but i i do think trying to read it as like a straightforward like either the ice or the woman as a straightforward metaphor for addiction is just like a complete misreading of it mm-hmm. and like i don't usually like calling things complete misreadings but like that seems pretty clear to me <laughs> yeah it can't I, um, I don't think it can be that simple i mean she there's just too many of these other things that we've already discussed going on with mm-hmm. the ice or with the men or with the repetition, you know, and all of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think so. I, I really like like um, experimental and weird fiction that has like an allegorical element, but I really like stories where it feels like the allegory is simple. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of stuff here that feels, I mean, the whole thing feels allegorical and sim um, and, and, and like symbolism, but there's no point when you can be like, okay, this symbolizes this yeah. done. Right. Um, which I think is part of like the, um, why it's such a rich text, um, yeah. obviously, um, I guess, because richness is, is the amount of things. So, you know, it's kind of dramatizing all, any number, number of um like abusive relationships and abusive ways of relating to the world around you um uh, uh, harmful ways of relating to the world around you even if they're not necessarily you know capital a abusive um and so um and, and you know there's a lot in there that i think you can read with an eye to saying you know this is a writer who was addicted to heroin and and this is a writer who um spent a lot of time with uh, psychoanalysis and uh, mm-hmm. right had breakdowns and stuff um 
and and you can kind of read it um, with that lens. But yeah, I mean, if you look at it and say, so the ice is heroin, and, <laughs> she's, and she's thinking that, and the main character is constantly thinking that the disaster is coming, and the disaster is presumably like a heroin overdose. Like that is like an incredibly simplistic way to read it, and it, that disaster is everything. <laughs> that right, disaster exactly. is like every kind of disaster. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, and uh, to to. To go back to what we were saying about like other texts from the 60s that we think about it in relation to or from earlier. So I was thinking about it very much. Um, part of the reason why I say that it feels like it kind of culminates at like the, the nexus point of a lot of things I've been interested in is because I've been really interested in the 60s, but also because I've been really interested in reading um, weird fiction from like mm. the early 20th century. Oh, but yeah. Not so much like the American tradition of it, but um, mm -hmm. so I've been reading a book called Ghostland by Edward Parnell, not not the oh. Colin Dickey one, which I know is meant to be great. But Edward Parnell's got a new book called Ghostland, which is like part memoir about his family dying young, part like travel book about walking around the UK and part about all his favorite like weird fiction and ghost stories about mm. the UK. Um, and um and he talks about um, William Hope Hodgson, who has, you know, these, uh, I think it's him who has like these incredibly creepy stories about like trees, it's like subsuming people. Mm. And there's a bit where she is kind of like trying to escape the trees and the trees mm. are like chasing her yeah. quite early in the book. And I was like, oh shit, yeah. Um, but And so I kind of see it as being like kind of a late entry into that early 20th century weird fiction, you know, pre-New Weird and in a way mm. pre-like, mid-century like psychedelic um fully psychedelic like weird experimental yeah. gonzo stuff but kind of shaped by that moment um and kind of shaped by like the dark undercurrents of the 60s and so yeah i think it like comes at, like an interesting historical point yeah um, i i think that's I, I think you're really onto something i think there's like and, and it also jives with something you said earlier charlotte <clears throat> about the how it makes you think of the stories of elflin the yeah. um there's this element of of the sort of of the fable, the dark fable or the, or the fantastical fable that reminds me, yeah. that reminds me of, of like, um, an elf land story by, uh, what's, what's his name? Christ. Lord Dunsany. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Lord Dunsany was actually another writer that I wanted to talk about, although I haven't read, um, the King of Elfland's Daughter. Which right. Is but it's this sort novel. of, yeah, it's, it's yeah. this, it's this dark foreboding fantasy story where, you know the the entire world around you is dangerous and like any um you know anything that you see could be something that you must like overcome to pass through it so to speak um and yeah. it, it kind of has this like sort of almost element of 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 fear or horror it's like um the the arl king you know for example or like an old an old uh, german uh fable about some sort of like you know uh, demon or or fairy or elf that's going to come and take you away you know and and like these sorts of stories um which in the in the victorian era in the late victorian era were sort of like <clears throat> i don't know re re-commodified you could say or like or like re rewritten into a new yeah. version and then like <clears throat> that was one one thing that fed into lovecraft that fed into um weird tales and all this sort of magazines about these things and and then you know i i really like that connection i think that's really cool yeah 
Lord Dunsany is um, a writer that I've been reading recently for the first time, um, and I've been reading uh, reading a few of his short stories and listening to um, listening to audio podcasts of people reading them actually. But there's there's one that I was thinking of a lot in relation to this, which I can't get out of my head, um, and I think it's called it's called a shop on Go by Street or a house on Go by Street, um, and it's very short, and it's about a guy who um, years previously had been on a ship with um like sailors um i i can't remember the details but maybe a whaling ship maybe a pirate ship some, some probably like just a merchant ship and he wants to go back to the ship and see his friends and so he knows there's a way to get back and it's through the house on go by street and it's essentially like in another realm almost like a fairy type realm and so he goes to the shop and in order to deal with the shopkeeper you have to try to buy something first and the shopkeeper has to not have it but the shopkeeper has basically everything so the <laughs> thing he asked for is like vials of river water from like the nile and another river and the shopkeeper's like oh i don't have it like and is really annoyed and so then he gets to go around the back of the house into this like witch's house and then he's like trying to find it and when he discovers the ship it's like the wreckage of the ship it's like uh. it's like impossible to go back to that like magical place but it's like it like there's these weird layers and there's all this stuff about like dreaming gods who are asleep and like mm-hmm. but you know it so it's got this like rich mythic world and then it's just like it's all gone. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's just, and this undercurrent but, yeah. of, of of sort of danger or fear uh, that that crops up here and there because, like, you know, if you make the wrong move, then like, yeah, you'll you won't succeed. Everything mm. will come crashing down around you. Like, <clears throat> yeah. And I think the fact that there are no real place names mentioned, and when he's in different places, you know, he can talk to people. Yeah, no one has a name. Right, um, right. It very much adds to like the weird mythic sense that like he's constantly traveling in these like horrifying magical places mm-hmm. where yeah. you know, and and he kind of has like a magical almost or like a fully kind of fantastical um, ability to get out of any situation but you still have the sense that constantly there's like a noose closing or whatever right if it was anyone right. but him like right, all the people right, right. that he like exactly. leaves behind and like right exactly i mean that well, whenever he goes back like the places are decimated right like he, he, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah he always escapes by the skin of his teeth more or less yeah. and no one else does yeah and th- this this also reminds me um i think there's some you know a lot of critics have made this point and and i think someone already mentioned this but but kafka is is of course like a mm-hmm. A classic reference and there's some there's a rumor i don't know if it's true that the k in kavan uh, was that she chose the name anna kavan for her character in a in the previous book that then was the source of it becoming her name because the mm. k because of k in in, in um in uh, kafka's name and because of k in in his stories and so on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's interesting so, so so anyway I, regardless regardless of that rumor she you know there there's there seems to be a lot of there's a there's an interesting connection here because like the stories of this sort of fantastical like like fables about the modern world and the kind of horrors mm. of the modern world um are are you know there's a particular kind of almost like european fable quality that that like i associate with dunsany and 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 with some of the weird stories um from europe that 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 she has and that kafka has i think this is like interesting sort of like almost like um scary fable connection between those things 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another of the writers I've seen her compared to is um, a writer who I'm reading at the moment, um, whose name I now cannot remember, despite the fact that I have been carrying her book around with me. Um, Leonora Carrington, who was a British surrealist. She moved to Germany and then to Mexico and she lived in Mexico for most of her life. And she wrote in French and Spanish. Um, and she like oversaw her translations into English, which was her, you know, first native language Um, and she writes these incredibly odd surreal fables that are often like two three pages long and you get to the end and you're just like okay (laughs) (laughs) that face was definitely the face i was making reading most of this book (laughs) yeah i mean and leonora carrington i think is more fun um but also very brutal um so so the first story in her collection is about a girl who makes who's a going to be a debutante and doesn't want to be a debutante she's made best friends with a hyena at the zoo and so the hyena at the zoo is the same size as her so so they decide to switch so she can stay at home and the hyena goes to the um to the debutante ball and the height and they have to get a face for the hyena so they kill her maid and the hyena bites carefully i'm doing a little <laughs> adrian's face right now i'm doing a little like motion so she like the, the hyena like bites around the face of the maid very carefully and like wears it and goes to the ball oh, and then I at the this. end of the book and then at the end of the book the mum comes home and angrily says that that thing you sent in your place shouted i don't like cake and then jumped out of the window <laughs> and, and then ate and, and ate her face and that's like the end of the story oh my um, god so it's all like just like really weird and i love yeah, that i i love that so read, much you've got to read the story because I, I, I definitely do <laughs> but um but but yeah i mean there is an interesting there is an interesting thing in so i i talked briefly earlier about how there's like a whole like weird politics of fiction thing in the uk where a lot of like experimental or like modernist mm. literature um like in the, in the modernist or postmodernist tradition in the uk is very much sidelined um and a lot of that stuff finds more of a kinship with european literature and literature and translation mm. um and i think anna Kavan is definitely a case of that mm. and and i think that's part of you know people talk about her in, in relation to um kafka a lot and um, i mean even beckett obviously beckett was irish mm. but he wrote in french and would translate his own stuff sometimes um and yeah i very much think that that um that i kind of see her more in a kind of european rather than like this is a british writer who's like you mm-hmm. know um writing solely in a british tradition um there's very much like a mythic european fucked up fable yeah i mean i you just you made know, me another think book that Yo, go oh. ahead sorry Oh yeah, I was gonna say another book that kind of came up for me while reading this one, um, and was was Nabokov and Lolita, right? And this kind of like sense of this like guy who is like driven, and we see it all from his point of view, and kind of like running after this mm. like you know wayfish young girl, blah 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 blah. Um, but also like that in the sense of like you know kind of like more continental European, like you know wrote in Russian, but also translated his own work into English. I think was living in France for like a big chunk of his life. Like that does feel like there there does seem that like that sense of her being more continental European. I I that makes some weird sense to me in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think so. There's there's a there's there's a sort of really interesting thing what you what you said charlotte about the connection between um like british weird authors and like continental literature is like really interesting and uh i kind of want i want to like think about that a lot more i think <clears throat> but it, it sort of instantly made me think of uh 
of Marguerite Duras, who um, she wrote, um, you know, a, a lot of really sort of new wavy stories about women uh, in weird, fucked up relationships. They tend to have better endings. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> they, 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 they are very different books, um, very different stories. But um, the 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 connection, I guess, is like there's this sort of sensibility that's similar. Like there's this sort of, you know, uh, attention to psychological detail and like internal state and like interiority that, that she's really interested in um, and a kind of like uh, travel all over. Um, mm-hmm. you know, some of her stories take place in, in French Indochina or the other French colonies and they involve like people and, you know, in this sort of like weird environment that's like foreign and alien and, and a little bit horrifying and a little bit also maybe more pure and like exoticized in like problematic ways. But there's a lot of similarity there and, and it's super interesting because like it's actually hard for me to think of that exact sensibility Except for like the only British authors I think of who have it are also people who had this sort of colonial experience like J.G. Ballard. Like he's a guy I definitely associate like like the drowned world or the what's the one he has one about ice, too, doesn't he? He He has like the frozen world or something like that. He has a bunch of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it turns out I think Anna Kavan has a book about um, heat. (laughs) One of her other (laughs) books is about like this sort of like apocalyptic jungle heat and like. (laughs) Right. Right. It's it's like a weird connection. But like I think there's this connection basically to the like in the British context, it's like you have to leave Britain in order to have that sensibility. You have to like have experienced this like colonial life or you have to have this sort of European continental connection, which is like, I don't know why that would be, but it does. I, yeah. I it seems like there's something there. Or, or I mean, in the case of like um, some of the writers I mentioned briefly earlier in like the 1970s, like Anne Quinn and B.S. Johnson, they were largely working class writers who um, didn't go through like the traditional like, I'm a British novelist, I'm going to go to Oxford and blah, blah, blah. You know, um, and B.S. Johnson's like last and most famous book, Christy Mowry's own double entry is about a um, bookkeeper who ends up, um, who, who, keeps like his ledger of all the things the world takes from him and then he <laughs> is like taking it from the world in kind and oh, he ends man. up poisoning he ends up poisoning the water in london and killing oh, loads of people God. um i read this when i was like 17 um this is oh, the kind of man. this is the kind of 17 year old i was i was like i'm gonna get this out of print book about um <laughs> about an accountant poisoning everyone because the world is taking too much from him. <laughs> but um but i mean but you know they're still kind of outside um the kind of like normal british literary system i guess um yeah another another book that i actually had kind of thought of while reading this um as like a previous prior comp um again on the like colonialist kind of like travelogue with a lot of like you know i don't don't even know but but heart of darkness by joseph conrad right and like this sense of kind of like going the further up the river you go the kind of like further into a dream state you go the like more you like lose language you know sort of like the more you lose civilization and like some of these feel like you know especially the stuff with the like you know i i keep going back to the like this weird detail of these like singing primates, the injurious mm, that like yeah. he keeps bringing up over and over again. <laughs> and I keep like going back to that detail because it's so out of place in the rest of the book. 
anytime it comes up, it's somewhat, it was somewhat jarring to me. I, and every time I'd be like, oh yeah, that's right. That's this running plot where like he has this like weird fascination and obsession with these like primates that like sang to him at one point and he like felt good. And it's, you get the sense that it's like maybe the only time he's ever been happy and felt <laughs> nice. <laughs> it was like this one uh, time he like heard these like monkeys sing <laughs> and like he's constantly going back to it. And that, that is this like, you know, I don't know. Just like, I guess part of, I'm just sort of asking like, what do you guys think that meant? Cause I have like a few ideas, but they're all very vague. Yeah. I, I, um, I associate the sort of singing monkeys with like this. It's like, I find it sort of disturbing. You know, I, I found like the, this, this, this sort of sense of these monkeys always being singing in the background and especially of it, that being like something that this like brutal protagonist enjoys like that, that sort of allied the singing of the monkeys with him in my mind and sort of made it so that <laughs> there was this like undercurrent of like distress right. or like disturbance every time the monkeys come up. And it's also this like slightly creepy sound to right. imagine in the context I should of say every other. lemurs, not monkeys. I got that wrong. Sorry okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's this like creepy sound to imagine in the context of everything, all the other terrible things that are happening. Right. Um, yeah. Especially because like the only other sound that I really remember from the book is the ice. <laughs> right the like yeah. thunder and crackle of the ice yeah 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 and just, just like those are the two sounds like but um, it, yeah go ahead doesn't doesn't um he at, at some point near the beginning when um when the woman the girl is married to the other guy doesn't he hasn't he given the guy a record of the monk of the lemur oh, singing yes. and the guy plays the record i told oh, you man. i don't like it i don't oh, like yeah. it and right. she takes it off um it's more yeah, of the like I mean, men being in league with each other isn't it in a way i hadn't like yeah. yeah yeah oh yeah but i mean i think part of it is i mean i kind of think of part of it has to do with what i was saying about the the um natural world but but yeah, I mean, so one of the one of the things about it is it's very much like an exception, right? So it's not like he's saying, "Oh, I want to go back to this place where the ecosystem or the natural mm -hmm. world it means a lot to me." It's I want to go back to hear these lemurs doing this one thing, which is like the thing that they do that I've got this record of, and it's very much like from a perspective of I am the outsider going in to observe them. Yeah. Um. And and it's also like from a very far away place. It's like a kind of touristy, privileged, um, like mm. because it's not like he's a proper researcher, right? He's like someone who's like, I want to go and do this because it would be a nice thing like I can do in between all my, you know, fighting of wars and eco tourism, like essentially. People. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think that's interesting as like something that comes up over and over again through the book is like this idyllic lost place but it's also like this idyllic lost place where he's only interested in like the one like headline thing right um and then i think that's like an interesting contrast to when he talks about like the whole world kind of becoming dead and all the natural mm, world and yeah all the other animals and ecosystems and you know it's just like and and when he does get the opportunity to go back there he's like uh yeah but i could chase the, i could chase the woman around and, right mm -hmm. you know i could fight a, a war that i assume is modeled on yeah. vietnam but, yeah um, I, I guess it could be other other wars from the mid-century um but yeah um uh, so that's not really a complete thought, but I kind of think about it in kind of opposition to more expansive 
visions of the whole world dying um yeah of the natural world it's kind of like very much this separate small commodified almost yeah part of the natural world that he can point to and yeah i love the record that she hates of the monkey scene, oh. which <laughs> i would forgot be, about that that is actually really good <laughs> If your husband insisted on playing like that record, yeah, it's hor- I think- that's horrifying. That's absolutely horrifying. I mean, I mean, I I think it, an aspect of this book that we've talked about a little that I really really like is the sense in which it's like seeing, you know, the the particular like most obvious way that it subverts this like, um, you know, ma- like male centric vision of what a relationship is supposed to be like is by you know, giving you the woman's perspective on the relationship from the perspective of the man. So it's like this sort of double flip thing. Um, Mm. And, and like, this was a detail, like, if you imagine this story being written from the perspective of the woman, like, the the, the sound of the monkeys would be this, like, horror, it would be like the sound, uh, it would be like the, the, like, the, like, screeching sound that you hear as the murderer, like, whips out his knife, you know what I mean? It's this, like, it's Mm. the sound that signifies the, like, final horror you know like (laughs) Mm -hmm. but instead the perspective is flipped and so it's like he likes it it's his sound that he likes it's like his song you know he's like into it it's like his favorite thing quote unquote favorite thing because actually he doesn't care that much you know (laughs) it's not as important as the like horror shit that he has to do (laughs) yeah i mean it's like his version of like someone saying you know one day i'm gonna sit down and write a novel or whatever right, <laughs> right. it's like the thing mm-hmm. that he, his image of himself is that he is you know this right. like sophisticated person who can go to the you know to this island and, and <laughs> um, watch the monkeys singing right um right the right. Yeah. <laughs> i feel like you just thoroughly roasted him and like me too somehow <laughs> Wait, well, i mean also myself <laughs> very much myself but, um. so um i i need to wrap up um just like due to real world logistics i need to run here very soon um but i wanted to we've talked about a lot of kind of like earlier comps and just before we did wrap up i wondered what you guys thought about like because yeah, this is a science fiction book club podcast. <laughs> and so sort of like maybe like what are some more modern, maybe more science fiction or literary fiction, whatever. I'm, I'm less interested in that. But like what are some of the like more modern novels that you might recommend to people who liked this book, who maybe liked the idea of it, but didn't actually enjoy reading it like that kind of thing. I have a few ideas <laughs> in mind, but I'm also curious, like what you guys think. Uh, all right. Well, I've got some uh, I've got some thoughts. Um Yeah. We, uh, currently in real time this you know the sort of publication of these episodes is not happening in the in the like the recording and and the publication are, are We're very all out of times. order right and now. so uh <laughs> i'm currently still reading uh rivers solomon's unkindness of ghosts yeah which uh in many ways has a lot um a lot 100%. in common with this book and i think like her work in general seems to be something that would be a very modern um body of work that that is in dialogue with this these sort of themes and so mm-hmm. definitely uh recommended and like spoiler alert for an episode that has already happened if you're listening to this one but like i loved that book so i, mm-hmm. I fully agree with you on that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I'm just looking at my list of things I've read because I have the world's worst memory for <laughs> recent books. Um, because my the, the other main comp that I have is not recent, but um, if you're into children's books, Comet in Moominland <laughs> um, <laughs> is about the, the Moomins and their friends waiting for this comet to hit. And that's very much like also oh, wow. shaped like nuclear anxieties. Um but um, I'm just looking. What have I read recently? <laughs> well, Sorry. I, I can give one which is like fairly recent. Um, it's a different Beckett, but it's Chris Beckett, who we've read one of his novels and like had him on the podcast. But his most recent book, um, Beneath the World of Sea, like features some of the same kind of like, especially like this dreamlike prose and this thing where like the characters will be kind of like narrating a thing and then it will just get further and further from the thing that it is that they're narrating and kind of like slip into these different thoughts and ideas in a very kind of stream of consciousness way also features these like singing humanoid primate things that kind of like cause these reactions and is a very like psycho dynamic like psychological kind of like um you know, he's a social worker, so he's like a psychiatrist, essentially, right? And so, like, he writes at it from this kind of, like, psychoanalytic perspective as well. Um, and I, I, it's funny, I really like him as an author. I don't know if, like, I also, reading that book, like, don't know if I liked the book, <laughs> but was, like, glad to have read it. And I feel kind of the same way about this. Like, mm. I kind of both hated the experience of reading Ice but I think I'm glad I read it and I'm definitely glad we talked about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think my other thing, I now can't actually remember the name of the story, but I don't know if I talked about her last time I came on. I talk about her a lot. Um, there's a writer I really love called Sophia Samata. Mm -hmm. um, you did, I think, talk about her. She has a novella which came out in her collection um, of stories, Tender, which came out a couple of years ago um, and came out in paperback maybe last year. But in Tender, there is a novella called something that I cannot remember, but it's like the, the biggest thing in the book. Um, and it's a weird kind of uh, post-apocalyptic, almost i guess um story about um mennonites um mm. so she is from mm. a um she she is mennonite i think and went to mennonite college and stuff um and it's about this group of mennonites who when the whole earth um became embroiled in war and, and mennonites and um anabaptists um are pacifist and, and won't take part in military conflict they um go to a faraway planet because um, there's nowhere else on earth they can go to escape from the war and being forced to fight. And um, and it's like incredibly bleak. There's like no, very little sunlight, <laughs> very little energy, very little food. And there's like this big castle on the planet mm. where like a lot of weird fucked up stuff happens. Um, why can't I remember the name of the story? <laughs> but yes, um, it's we'll very much like- We'll find it and link it. Yeah, yeah. It's very much like in that kind of vein. Um, and I would also say Sophia Samantar had a book of like um, kind of prose poems slash flash, slash flash fiction called Monster Portraits that came out last year, which mm. I would also um, say. And um, yeah, the Sophia Samantar story is called Fallow. Fallow. Ooh, sounds Fallow, interesting. Yeah. Very strongly cool. recommend <laughs> but cool. again it's very bleak so <laughs> right, well you know i mean i don't i don't think anything we've recommended here hasn't been so <laughs> yeah my, my partner often says that the the best way to consume uh stories is to just do like the 
proper ratio of like happy to sad or like or like bleak to not bleak you know you just have to get the ratio right um right so (laughs) i've definitely bleaked out a little bit over the last three weeks and need to like (laughs) read something fun watch some more shit's creep yeah yeah, that's been helping (laughs) um i need i yeah that's that's been a good one that's my diagnosis for everyone who has, More Patrick. Who, has read, who has read Ice by Anna Kavan. Watch some Shit's Creek and feel happy again. It's it's a it's a good diagnosis. It's a it's a good antidote for sure. Nice. Oh, all right. Well, Charlotte, thank you again so much for coming on again. I'm really glad we got to do this with you. Um, thank you so I much. Think, like, you know, it's like in a lot of ways, just so nice that you have this wealth of like reading experience that like I don't have and Matt doesn't um, as much. I mean, more so than I do. But, you know, no, you absolutely. Like, bring absolutely. a lot of like, information here. Um, well, thank you very much for having me on. If you want to read more weird mid-century stuff at any point. And you know, you're like, who who to get on? I'm always up for reading horrible books. Uh, it was also really lovely for me because of course this is the first time I'm recording with Charlotte. And indeed the first time that I'm meeting her, so it's really lovely. Yeah. Same. It's been a very very nice time and a very nice break from worrying about house moving, which is the main thing that's occupying me at the moment. Right, I can imagine. Well, thank you again, I mean in the midst of all that for coming on and um at tambourine on twitter we'll like you know link to your stuff in the show notes as always um yeah matt good chatting with you as always we'll do it again tomorrow for an episode that will come out before this one and everything's toffee turvy and (laughs) um cool yeah so uh, also thanks to wj for our music um noah bradley for our artwork we are at Spectology Pod on Twitter, which is, you know, you can come and chat with us. That's how Charlotte and I met, is chatting through Twitter. And spectologypod at gmail.com if you'd like to email us about anything. Um, send us hate mail. Send us love letters. We'll take it all. Um, I'll read it all. <laughs> and yeah, with that, thanks, everyone. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> Peace out. Bye. Good, good, good. And it didn't crash. <laughs>